Amen. Fantastic. Who's ready for the word tonight? Okay, I'm going to need you to help me because last night I got through two points. This morning I got through two points and I've got three. So I need you to help me see if I can get through three points tonight. Discipline. My wife's yelling out, it's discipline. She's saying, if you weren't such a jack wagon, you get through all. Th but anyway, let's just, let's just pray. Maybe, maybe, it's, maybe that's what it is. Heavenly Father, help me to communicate your word, Father, with uh, just in spirit and truth, Father, that this would be a word in season for these magnificent people, I pray in Jesus' name. Help me get through all three points. Everybody said? Amen. All right, I want you to come with me in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. The title of my message is Tragic Truths. Not that the truth is tragic. Not that the truth is tragic. It's just the, the inability to apply them can have tragic consequences. So Matthew 7, 24. Many of you will be familiar with this. Very popular passage of Scripture. Jesus says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and... Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him or her to a wise man, a wise person who built his house on the rock. Now, a lot of people think, well, you know, you're building your house on the rock is building your house on Jesus. And absolutely, Jesus is the rock. But when Jesus is teaching here, the rock isn't so much himself. When Jesus is teaching here, he says, whoever hears these sayings of mine and doesn't limit them to just being words that you heard, just being something that you give mental assent to, just doesn't leave it in the realm of something that you pontificate about. Oh, yes, wasn't that a lovely sermon? Oh, I enjoyed the sermon tonight. Yes, I'm not sure I totally agree with the theological perspective that, you know, the pastor brought tonight. You know, in fact, you know, in my upbringing, I was a Calvinist, and you have this, have it, have it, have it. You know, and so we can kind of, you know, Jesus says, blessed is the person who hears the word and does it. I will liken him to a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rains come down, the floods come up, the wind blows and beats on his house, but it withstands the rain, it withstands the flood, it withstands the winds, it, it overcomes the storm and is still standing. He says, but whoever hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, I will liken him to a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. The same rain comes down, the same flood comes up, the same wind blows. It's the same storm, but it's two different outcomes. It says, and this house crashes, and when it crashes, great is its fall. You know, C3, I kind of was preaching last week saying C3 very much is a, is a breakthrough church. C3 is very much an encounter church. Uh, we don't want to just kind of preach to you a theory that we have about God. We don't want to just preach to you a theory that we have about God that is so, well, you know, you can't really. We, we actually know that you can actually have an experience. You can have an encounter with God. But, but there's another word I want to add to what kind of church is C3. C3 is a transformative church. It's a transformation church. 
the reason I know that is a number of years ago, I was listening to a great pastor and a great leader, and he says that when, when a person is sent to plant a church, the DNA that is resonant in that person is what God is trying to reproduce, which is kind of scary because I live with me and I look at me in the mirror. And I'm like, oh, these poor people, they need prayer. But, but the truth is, I, I had an encounter with Jesus Christ on a beach. And he radically changed my life. My life was completely transformed. I had incredible encounters, supernatural encounters with God. On the 2nd of January, 1989, at a prayer meeting, I was filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in languages I'd never learned. I, I fell out on, on the ground. And I didn't know that you were meant to fall over. Nobody told me that, and there was no one to catch me. You always know it's legitimate when there are no catches and you still go down. And especially when you go down and it's concrete. I went into the concrete. And I'm laying there. And I, I, when I got up, I had so much joy. I could not stop laughing for about 30 minutes. In fact, I couldn't even drive my car because I'd never been this filled with the Holy Spirit. I hadn't been this intoxicated with the Holy Spirit that I wasn't sure whether I could actually, so somebody else drove my car home. I remember getting home, and up until that time, I, I've, I would say to you that I was a, maybe a good Christian is the wrong word, but I was a dutiful Christian. I, I knew that as a, as a Christian, I needed to read the Bible every day, and so I used to do Bible studies at, the wor at my workplace with, with a little Bible study devotional called Daily Bread. I'm not sure if anyone's familiar with, with Daily Bread. And so I'd have my Daily Bread devotional, and the truth is, I, I, I you know, kind of, Oh gosh, okay, it's three pages today. And you know, and, I, and, and, and the whole goal, the whole goal was to get through it. The goal was to get through it. I'm like, oh, thank God that's over. Oh, I love it. Oh, you know, and uh, yes, you know. And, and then I remember going to prayer meetings. I remember going to prayer meetings and, uh, and you know, and, and go to these prayer meetings with people who are filled with the Holy Spirit and they just love to pray. And I'm like, oh my gosh. I'm like, hang on, well, we've got to have someone to start, someone to finish. You've got to have a finished person. So we can finish this thing. You know, bookend it. You start it and some, someone finishes. This one, so, I, so we can, with this other stuff to do. We've got to eat. We've got to, and so, 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 but I found these people who were filled with the Spirit. They could just pray all day. I'm like, what's wrong with these people? And, and so, so I get home from being filled with the Holy Spirit and I open my Bible for the next three hours. I cannot stop reading the Scriptures. They came alive because I was filled with the author who penned those words. And all of a sudden, he's now reading with me and showing me things that I never said. And it was like the words was literally, the only way I can describe it was like they were swimming on the page and they were leaping into my spirit. Since then, I've had an insatiable hunger for the Word of God. But I want you to know that we are a transformation church. We are a transformation church. We preach to transform. We do not preach just to inform. I've been to churches where you get a nice little newsletter bulletin and, and, and it has the sermon for the week and it has little, you know, little, and I'm not trying to make fun of, you know, that's awesome. You know, absolutely follow through and if it helps people, it helps people. But, you know, but, but if, if, all you, if all you take away from church is just more theological information, I kind of feel like we, we, we've missed it. I kind of feel like we've missed it. You know, the, 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 there's 168 hours in the week. And if you're in a 90-minute sermon, 
There's 166.5 other hours where the world is doing its best to kind of whittle down and, and compromise and dilute and pollute and contaminate the, the, the goodness of God, the faith of God, the grace of God, the measure of God's giftings on the inside of you. I find I've got 90 minutes I have to preach so that you have an encounter with the word of truth so there can be transformation in your life. Can somebody say amen? Now, we live in an age where there is, a, there is a war on truth. I'm not sure if you realize, but truth is unpopular. The truth, people don't want to hear the truth. You can't handle the truth. Listen, son, this world has walls, and those walls need to be guarded by men with guns. Who's going to do it? You? You, Lieutenant Weinberg? You weep for Santiago and curse the Marines. You have that luxury. You have the luxury of not knowing what I know. That Santiago's death, while tragic, probably saved lives. We use words like code, honor. We use them as a life spent defending something. You use them as a punchline at parties. Deep down in places you don't like to talk about, you want me on that wall. You need me on that wall. Anyway, I better stop. So <clears throat> we're gonna get we're gonna get to a couple of scriptures, but but let me just say truth is under attack. Truth is under attack, and and the whole political correctness thing is, hey, let's just remove truth because what if it offends people? There's a spirit. It's an antichrist spirit. And it hates the truth. In fact, if you look in your scriptures, in your Bible, in John 8, 44, Jesus says that not only was the devil a murderer from the beginning, but Jesus actually said that he is the father of lies. He is the father of all lies. He is the begetter of lies. And this is what Jesus says. He says he will not stand in the truth because the truth is not in him. I've got to tell you that one of the saddest things that I've seen in, in church, my job as a pastor is to make disciples. I cannot disciple somebody in the kingdom who is unwilling to stand in the truth. At, 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 listen, here's the deal. Here's the deal. The truth is, the truth is, as difficult as hearing the truth from, from the church is, as difficult as hearing the truth from the word is, as difficult as discipleship is, and discipleship are truth encounter moments. You want to have truth encounter moments. You want somebody to tell you you're behaving like a jack wagon. You want somebody to tell you you are mistreating your spouse. You want somebody to tell you that you need to line your philosophy up with the Word of God. You want somebody to tell you when you're wrong because here's the deal. One day you and I will stand in front of God. The Bible says that God is truth undiluted. If you can't handle dilution, Diluted truth, how are you going to stand on that day? The greatest training ground for standing on that day is to be in church, to be in a place of submission, to be in a connect group, to be under leadership, to submit yourself to authority and be in a place where you are encountering truth. We are a transformation church, but we cannot transform. We cannot transform without the, the sending forth of truth. Now, the truth isn't popular. But Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I find that when people lose their way, it's because they've drifted from the truth. 
And you always know when you lose your way, you've drifted from the truth because there's no life. And because there's no life, you've got to inject things into your veins, snort things into your nose, inhale things into your lungs, or drink things into your system because life has departed because you forsook truth and have lost your way. But when you find the truth, when you embrace the truth, you find that you end up in the way and you have life and life more abundantly. Somebody say amen. What I like about, what I like about the truth is the truth opens our eyes. That the truth reveals to me my limited thinking. We live in a world system that wants to brainwash you away from God. Some people used to say to me, oh, you, you know, you go into church, you're getting brainwashed. Absolutely. If you saw how messed up my brain was, you would have said, man, it needs washing. That boy need to wash that brain right there. That's a, that's a, that's a messy brain. I mean, I had to wash. I thank God that that church is like a brainwash every week you know you take your car through the car wash thank God I've got a brainwash a soul wash a heart wash a spirit wash a mind wash an agenda wash an ambition wash a spirit wash I need to be washed each and every week but I find that I find that when, when I when I encounter the truth the truth will begin to 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 replace my 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 stinking thinking so I'm going to show you a clip in a moment. It's from the, the movie, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. And it's a powerful, it's a powerful mo- movie because uh, Quasimodo, who's the bell ringer, basically the minister of justice, his name is Frodo. It's not Frodo from the Lord of the Rings. It's not Frodo Baggins. Okay, it's a different Frodo. His name just happens to be Frodo as well, but he's nothing like Frodo Baggins. He's the Minister of Justice. And the, the, the Disney cartoon of Hunchback of Notre Dame opens with the Minister of Justice, Frodo. And the song basically says that he sees evil and sin everywhere except within. He sees evil and sin everywhere except within and he hates the gypsies and he wants to exterminate the gypsies because to him they're vermin and he just wants to, wants to eradicate them. But there's this one beautiful gypsy called Esmeralda and he finds himself, he finds himself just smitten by her. He finds himself infatuated with her and, and now he's dealing with, he, 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 you know, he, he wants her but he, but he hates her because she's a gypsy but he really wants her and so he captures her and he tricks Quasimodo. Quasimodo literally means half formed and it was Frodo that gave him the name after he's basically killed the mother, wanted to throw little Quasimodo into a well and the priest came out and said, stop, how dare you spill steps, uh, blood on the steps of Notre Dame and now you want to add this sin? He says, oh, it's a a deformed child. I'm sending it back to hell where it belongs. And he says, don't you dare. Do you think you can defy in the eyes of God? And so Frodo is smitten. So he says, what do I have to do? He says, you have to raise the child. So he raises the child. The second song in the movie basically has him singing to to little Quasimodo saying, you're ugly. And little Quasimodo says, I'm ugly. He says, you're a monster. I'm a monster. These are crimes the world does not tolerate. These are crimes that the world will punish you for. Do not go outside. Stay here in the church. In here you have sanctuary. Never go outside. Now the scene that we're about to see, Quasimodo has been chained up while, uh, anyway, I won't tell you anymore. Roll the video. Guilty of the crime of witchcraft. 
the sentence, death. The time has come, Gypsy. You stand upon the brink of the abyss. Yet even now, it is not too late. I can save you from the flames of this world and the next. Choose me or the fire. The Gypsy Esmeralda has refused to recant. This evil witch has put the soul of every citizen in Paris. Quasi, snap out of it! Your friends are down there. It's all my fault. You gotta break these chains! I can't. I tried. What difference would it make? But you can't let Frollo win. He already has. So you're giving up? That's it? These chains aren't what's holding you back, Quasimodo. Leave me alone. Okay. Okay, Quasi. We'll leave you alone. After all, we're only made out of stone. We just thought maybe you were made of something stronger. For justice, for Paris, and for her own salvation, it is my sacred duty to send this unholy back where she belongs. Let's give it up for Quasimodo! Sanctuary! In those days, nobody could be arrested. There was no, no law that could come onto the, the grounds of the house of God because the house of God was holy ground. And so people could run in there and claim sanctuary because in the eyes of God, everyone was, was, was even and equal. And, and so Quasimodo did that. But I just want to talk to you very quickly uh, about Quasimodo right there because we saw him chained. And I love the dialogue with the gargoyles. And the gargoyles said, come on, break these chains. Isn't that, isn't that the person that you love? Isn't that Esmeralda? That's your friend down there. Go down and rescue her. He says, I can't break the chains. I've already tried. Besides, what difference would it make? And then the other little gargoyle comes up and says, it's not the chains that are holding you back. Just leave me alone. All right, we'll leave you alone. 
after all we're just made of stone we thought you were made of something else or we thought you were made of something stronger here's the deal for, for years I've grappled with I've heard you know when people get saved and come into the church it's not about you it's not about you it's all about the lost it's all about the lost but at some point it actually has to be about you at some point it has to be about you it has to be about you. It has to be about you having an encounter and you having an experience and, and you experiencing healing and you experiencing deliverance and you experiencing breakthrough. But then I've seen the, the other extreme where it's, it's only about you and, and the church becomes daily and weekly more and more irrelevant to the world outside. We have our flags and our tambourines and our rolling on the floor and we have our, our, our church language and our Christianese and, and, and we become more and more irrelevant and it's only about us and it's not about but but I found from this God gave me an incredibly powerful perspective that when when Quasimodo became in touch with the great purpose of God for his life to to see and to rescue people that are perishing people whose lives are in jeopardy it gave him the purpose to break the chains and uh, go and set the captives free can I just tell you can I just tell you it, it is a, it is a, a stone heart generation that excludes itself or abdicates itself from the responsibility of fulfilling the great commission and the great purposes of God for their lives because of our chains, because of our addictions, because of our habits, because of our weaknesses. And you don't understand what I'm doing. And we, we elevate to the place of idolatry, our own suffering, our own difficulty. You don't understand. I come from a dysfunctional home. You don't understand. And, and all we ever want to talk about is my problem, my problem. And we exalt my problem over God's great purposes for our lives can I just tell you absolutely God will heal you God will set you free God will deliver you but most of the time that will happen when you begin to embrace God's purpose for your life and you'll find as you begin to embrace God's purpose those chains that would seemingly seem so impossible and so solid all of a sudden begin to snap off your wrist begin to break off your your legs and you can begin to not only live free but set other people free can somebody say amen Number two, really quickly, number two is, is when truth comes in, it reveals our limits of our perception. It re reveals our limited perception, how you see the world, how you see yourself. That there's a popular word at the moment called self-esteem. Self-esteem. Self-esteem has the word self in it. See how smart I am? Self-esteem. The truth is... We live in a world where even though it's self-esteem, most people are living in such a way that they want to impress everybody else, hoping that will boost their self-esteem. You've heard the adage that, that we spend money we don't have on things that we don't need to impress people we don't really like. Spend money we don't have on things we don't need to try and impress people we don't like. And it's, and it's such a merry-go-round circus. It's such a, it will wear you out, the wear and tear of living a life, trying to get other people to be impressed with you. The Bible actually teaches us that self-esteem comes from you receiving the word of truth on the inside of you and realizing that you are made in the image and the likeness of God, that you are significant because God gave His Son, His only begotten Son 2,000 years ago to die on a cross in your place. You are so valuable and so precious. 
because self-esteem has to be something that rises on the inside. You have to know. But until you know your worth, until you know your value, until you know the value of your soul, you won't value other souls. In the late 80s and early 90s, we had people in, in different hoods around the place who were murdering other people for their Reeboks, for their, for their gym shoes, for their, for their basketball shoes. Because to them, higher than a human life was to be a possessor of a Nike. It's just, it's out of control. We live in a world right now where, where, where people's perception of values is all upside down. It's like somebody has broken into the jewelry shop in the night and taken all the, the price tags off the expensive stuff and put it on the cheap and taken the cheap price tags off and put it on the expensive. And the next day, most people don't know any difference and they come in. That's the world that we live in. But when the word of truth comes under the inside of you, it will open your eyes so that you begin to see the true value of things. Now, here's a, here's a truth from real estate that'll show you what the Bible says is true. In real estate, there is a law. And the law basically goes like this, that something is only worth what somebody's willing to pay for it. Now, you may have bought your house for $700,000 and you may have done $150,000 worth of upgrades. That doesn't mean it's worth $850,000. It's only worth what somebody's willing to pay for it. You feel it's worth eight fifty dollars because you paid seven, dollars and then you put another hundred and fifty dollars into it, but the market determines it's what someone's willing to pay for it. Well, can I just tell you, can I just tell you, you are priceless, According to the law of real estate, you are priceless because something is only worth what somebody's willing to pay for it. 2,000 years ago, God said that you are so precious, that you are so valuable, that this is what I'm willing to pay for it, my life for theirs. So I want to roll this clip from a very powerful movie called Schindler's List. Let's watch this clip. Hebrew from the Talmud, it says, whoever saves one life, saves the world entire.
Why did I keep the car? Ten people right there. Ten people. Ten more people. This pin. Two people. This is gold. Two more people. You would have given me two for At least one. You would have given me one. One more. One more person. Person, Stan. For this. I could have gone. One more person. And I didn't. I, I, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> See, the time's going to come one day we are going to stand in the light of eternity and look back and the cars and the gold pens and all the things that we pursued and all the things that we chased that were so valuable because of their shimmer, their shine, their glimmer and our fascination with it here on earth in the light of eternity. When Oscar Schindler, and that's based on a true story, Oscar Schindler with Schindler's List basically overstocked his his warehouses with 1100 people by bribing the german authorities because he was so moved by the atrocity of what was called the final solution the extermination of the jewish race and he saved 1100 people but all of a sudden now that the war's over and everything as he as he looks and he sees these people and they present him a gold ring he knew that they these people had nothing left. They were dressed in rags, skin and bone. Many of them had lost their, their wives, their, their husbands, their children, their mothers, their fathers. And yet they present him with a gold ring because some of them still had some gold fillings and some gold teeth left that they obviously would have had extracted without any anesthetic. And, and they make a ring and they put an inscription from the Talmud that he who saves one life saves the world entire and they present it to him and now he looks at his car and it is no longer a car it's 10 people he says why did i keep the car why did i keep the car there'd be 10 more 10 more and then he fills the pen and if you watch the movie amon gothy keeps asking him for the pen keeps wanting this gold pen from him he says why did i keep the pen he would have given me two this is gold. He would have definitely given me two. At least one, one more person. See, the truth is, my job as a pastor is to expose you to the Word of God each week so that you have a perception 
that is not eclipsed by the current temptations and trappings of immediate gratification the world offers that tries to eclipse you from the light of eternity so that you live a life here and now, a life that echoes all throughout eternity so that you and I can stand before God. Having done all to stand, we stood therefore, having overcome the devil, having lived a life. And it's not, and listen, don't ever think that it's not having houses and not having cars and not having, it's using those things to further the kingdom. It's using wealth to further the kingdom. It's establishing the kingdom of God here on earth that matters. The third one, thank you, Jesus. The third one, number three. Glory to God. The third one, number three. <laughs> is uh, The truth is, the truth is, mercy equals power. Mercy equals power. The longer that I'm a Christian, the more I begin to realize that your maturity and my maturity as a believer is determined by the level of offense we're willing to overlook. The Bible says love covers a multitude of sins. When people say, well, you know what? We left the church because, you know, the choir director left us off the roster. We left the church because the pastor didn't shake our hand at the door. We left the church because somebody gave us a funny look. I mean, they may have just had indigestion like that and you're like oh, I can't believe the look the pastor gave me that's it Dorothy we're leaving sorry different Dorothy different Dorothy the one from Kansas with the little golden slippers it would it's amazing what can I just tell you how many people know that 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 is like it if Jesus can be nailed to a cross with Romans gambling for his garments not even asking for forgiveness and Jesus lifts his head and prays for them they're in spitting distance That's why, I, that's why I, you know, it, that's why it's Jesus. Jesus could have get, said, God, strike them. And God, could, what is, but he says, Father, forgive them. Jesus nailed to a cross, refuses to die with bitterness or offense or resentment or unforgiveness. He is, he is the fullness. He is the, the full stature of what God what a Christian, what God's son or God's daughter looks like. He is full maturity. He is, he is the, the, right, the son of God, right? That's what we are growing into. And when I meet Christians who are so quick to, to hold grudges, and, and can I tell you, every single marriage that I seem to counsel that is struggling, one common denominator. It is just ridiculous, the list of laws. And the Bible says, love keeps no record of wrongs. No marriage can withstand you. You've got your list of all the, all, the, all the sins and the transgressions she's committed and she's got her list about. Now, how can any marriage sustain that? Love keeps no record of wrongs. The Bible says it's the glory of God to overlook a matter. Love covers a multitude of sins. The level of mercy, the level of mercifulness in your life is determined by the level of maturity in your life. If you want to show that you're a mature Christian, show me by how easily you forgive and how difficult it is to offend you. Mature Christians are unoffendable. Jesus says, blessed are those who were not offended because of me. Again, in the movie Schindler's List, uh, there's a very, very powerful scene. Amon Gothe, who is basically put in charge of Birkenau prison camp. Very, very cold. And, and the Gestapo had to be brainwashed by, by uh, Adolf Hitler. The Jews were called Untermenschen. Untermenschen is a German word 
Unter means under. Mention people that were basically under people or literally subhuman. And, and basically Hitler was preaching that according to evolution, evolution had chosen the Aryan race, the German race, to be the masters of the world. And he had chosen the Jewish race for elimination from extermination from the gene pool. And so Ammon Gothi is up there and he just gets his gun out because after all their, their lives, they don't really matter. And he's just taking great delight, just shooting and just popping off whoever he likes. And then he brags to uh, Oscar Schindler how he feels like he's a God, that he has the power of life and death in his hand. He is just like a God, but I won't tell you anymore. Let's just roll this clip. Why do you drink that motor oil? Hmm? I send you good stuff all the time. Your liver's going to explode like a hand grenade. You know, I look at you. I watch you. You're never drunk. Oh, that's... That's real control. Control is power. That's power. Is that why they fear us? We have the power to kill, that's why they fear us. They fear us because we have the power to kill arbitrarily. A man commits a crime, he should know better. We have him killed and we feel pretty good about it. Or we kill him ourselves and we feel even better. That's not power, though. That's justice. That's different than power. Power is when we have every justification to kill, and we don't. You think that's power? That's what the Emperor said. A man stole something, he's brought him before the Emperor, he throws himself down on the ground, he begs for mercy. He knows he's going to die. And the Emperor pardons him. 
He's a worthless man. He lets him go. I think you are drunk. That's power, Amon. That is power. Amon, the good. I pardon you. <laughs> If you watch the movie after that he completely changes and starts forgiving people rather than killing people because again Oscar Schindler interceded recognizing that Ammon Gothi was all about going on a power trip he says you know what power looks like power is I pardon you when the person deserves death and the Emperor knows he deserves death but says I pardon you that's power that's power that's power you want power in your marriage, you want power in your relationships, forgive. In this life, in this life, there probably won't be a week that goes by where you won't have some reason to forgive somebody. There won't be a, a week that goes by because we live in a world filled with people, all of us fallen, all of us with our dysfunction, all of us, all of us with our pains, hurting people hurt people. So the you're going to get offended. You're going to get hurt. But you know what I found? That people go to the gym and they lift weights to make their muscles stronger. God puts us in the gymnasium called life on planet earth where people will hurt you and betray you and afflict you and use you and persecute you and belittle you and slander you and do all that kind of stuff because Jesus is trying to get you to exercise your spiritual muscle in forgiveness every time you forgive you grow your spiritual inner man in fact forgiveness is the act of divinity you are never more like God than when you're forgiving somebody who has hurt you. That's why Jesus said, if somebody strikes you on the cheek, turn to him the other also. If somebody persecutes you, pray for them. If someone spitefully uses you, bless them. And said, in doing so, you'll pour hot coals on their head. They'll be in fear they can't understand. And he says, and in that way, you will glorify your Father in heaven. I got to tell you, life is too short to be bitter. Life is too short to live with unforgiveness. Do you know what unforgiveness literally is? Unforgiveness is like drinking poison, hoping the other person will die. Unforgiveness, I'm not forgiving them, is like you drinking the poison, hoping they will die. It doesn't affect them. It only cripples you. It doesn't affect them. It only damages you. It doesn't affect them. It only hurts you. Tonight, forgive. But the truth is, many of us can't forgive because we've never received forgiveness. My goal when I, when I was a teenager was when I turn 18, I, I'm going to punch my dad's head in. I was going to beat my dad to a pulp. Because from the age of, gosh, seven or eight, I can't tell you how many times he came home drunk and began to beat on my mum. And then when me and my little brother tried to intervene, we were not strong enough to withstand a grown man and his aggression. And so after taking a beating when I was about 15, I remember just crying in my room saying, when I turn 18, when I'm physically strong enough, that's when I'm going to take my dad. I'm going to beat him to a pulp. Instead, when I turned 18, I got saved. 
I had an encounter with Jesus Christ on a beach where I experienced forgiveness. Now, I'd love to tell you, and I forgave my dad straight away. I was 18 when I got saved, 22 when I went to Bible college. And it was at Bible college, God says, you need to forgive your dad. I said, "Uh, uh, uh-uh-uh, he ain't asking for forgiveness. Number one, he's not asking. Number two, he's not deserving. And God says, I'm not asking you to forgive him because he's asking. I'm not asking you to forgive him because he's deserving. I'm asking you to forgive him because there's a ceiling over your life. I cannot use you with this bitterness and resentment because whatever you hold inside of you is going to be reproduced. You need to get that thing out of you. Otherwise, all you're going to do is reproduce what's on the inside of you. And as I began to understand that Jesus has forgiven me of all my sin, who am I? Who am I? Who am I? And then he showed me a vision of my father's childhood. And then I realized he was once a broken little boy. He was once a hurt little boy. He never forgave his dad and had become just like him. Was I going to repeat that cycle? And then I realized, my God, far be it from me. I want to set a new legacy. I want to start a a new line. I want to start a brand new uh, normal in our home. So I forgave my dad, but I could only forgive because I'd received Jesus' forgiveness. Glory, glory.